First Peter Bible Study, Part 10, What Christians Are, Part 4. For lay leaders and deacons to conduct after the Sunday service or during a midweek Bible study session. Hear the word of our Lord from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now. Having gone over this passage three previous sessions ago, we keep coming back to it. It is the thesis statement for St. Peter's epistle. So that said, I'm not going to take up too, too much of the time here as we've been covering this material enough, but it is good to put the passage together, synthesize the message, and apply it to both doctrinal formation and Christian life. It might seem tiresome to go over a passage so many times, but this is what is part of called the Biblical Theology Method, which often looks to individual passages and entire books of the Bible and looks at theology somewhat from isolation. What is St. Peter's theology, and how does that fit into the systematic theology we have as a whole? So in order to understand what St. Peter is teaching us, what his theology is on various matters, we must find his central message and read 1 Peter in light of it. So what is the central message or the thesis of 1 Peter in light of this passage? It's simply this. Christ elevates the Christian as he himself was elevated and non-believers remain in humiliation. This message permeates the entirety of 1 Peter, especially in the teleological aspect. We were elevated, and so we must live as an elevated people. We have been brought to a new nation, and we must treat ourselves as such. Verses 4 and 5 say, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. So we know Christ was counted as having no value by men, by and large, yet God counts his Son as having infinite value, being chosen and precious. 
and thus he is made the chosen and precious cornerstone. You'll notice that St. Peter repeats that phrase, chosen and precious, uh, in verse 6 as well. Since the believer is raised up to be living stones like the living stone that is Christ, that means we too are chosen and precious in the eyes of God. If Christ is the cornerstone from which the standard is set, then we are being made to be like living stones in the spiritual house. That means we are being conformed to the image of Christ. But if someone is going to be conformed to the image of Christ, he must be brought out from being raw material and made better than he once was. This requires taking someone out of their previous debased state and bringing them up in status before God. Thus the Christian is brought to the new Israel, declared to be one among God's people before they even begin to conform to God's standards. And upon entrance, he is now a part of a chosen lineage, a universal priesthood, and a new nation, all of which belonging to our Lord, as verse 9 says. As we discussed earlier, this does not negate one's material status. I always have to include that because people get funky ideas. It does not negate what you are on the material world, but rather it adds to it. The universal priesthood confers dignity to all believers and certain rights, but it does not do away with natural hierarchies nor spiritual hierarchies. Husbands are still heads over their wives. The apostle is still a spiritual leader over the laity that he instructs, and Christ is still head over all. Yet even the newest believer, even a freshly baptized infant, has more value before God than any non-believer. You see, the non-believer does not and cannot have status before God, especially not the status that a believer has. It is true that later St. Peter will refer to the church's state as being one of exile, suggesting that the heathen have a kind of status in their own spheres. But it is evident that such individuals have no hope of the restoration which God promises to the church. Think about it this way. I'm going off script here. If you are in exile and God has promised you a kingdom, then you are going to be brought out of that kingdom. But the city of man, using Augustine's reflection on it, there's the city of God and the city of man. When you're taken out and brought into his kingdom, saved, the eschaton happens, final day of judgment, everything, the city of man, in all of our sinful ways, the world, the flesh, and the devil, all of that comes crashing down. It will not persist. So verse 6 reminds us, whoever believes in him, that is Christ, will not be put to shame. The inverse is true. The unregenerate will be shamed if they do not turn to Christ and join his people. Not only are they shamed and humiliated in the future, their rejection of Christ is something foretold by prophecy as leading to stumbling and breaking, as verse 8 says. The non-Christian who persists in unbelief shall stumble and break when in contact with Jesus Christ. The status difference between the believer and the non-believer borders on the ontological. 
a Christian is almost a different class of being altogether than a non-Christian. Believers are part of the true Israel, while God does not even consider non-believers to be part of any people. Let's reread this verse here. When it says, once you were not a people, that tells us that non-believers are not a people before God. When St. Peter says, you had not received mercy, that means there is no mercy from God for non-believers. Believers have their sins forgiven. Receiving mercy from our Lord, non-believers do not. And thus, without conversion, they are destined for eternal punishment. Someone who is not a Christian is in a kind of spiritual darkness from verse 9, and thus they cannot even perceive reality correctly. In other words, on account of sin, the heathen are properly understood as defective humanity, while Christians are understood as restored humanity. Everything that you were supposed to be since Eden that's what you become when you convert. Weakly, of course, the old Adam is still there and must be drowned in our baptism every day, but you become something different entirely and superior to what you were because you are restored to that original teleological intent. So, throughout First Peter, a message rings out that one who is elevated in this way by God will live accordingly. If we are being made closer in our character to Christ, the intention is to live the way Christ did during his earthly sojourn before the ascension. So we thus seek to build the house of God by doing good works, loving our neighbor as ourselves, continuing in prayers and supplications, altogether cooperating with what the Holy Spirit is doing during the process of sanctification. If the Christian is a restored human being, then we ought to act like it. Yet, not only ought we to show the good works and character development which are associated with our union to Christ, we are also called, each one of us, to a kind of evangelism. We must, by word and deed and life, proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Going off script again, think about it this way. God called you and I to be believers, using the word as the means of our conversion. Well, he wants us to therefore go out and make more believers. In some way, shape, or form, everybody does a different kind of evangelism. This isn't a demand that you go out and do some street preaching. To the contrary, sometimes it, all your evangelism is, is evangelizing your kids and properly catechizing them. Pastors evangelize to their congregation whenever they preach a good law and gospel sermon. But it's still something that God wants us to do, continuing to build up the house of God that he put us in. It's one of the reasons he saved us. Now, that means that we should not, despite our higher status, be arrogant nor condescending toward the heathen. We need to call their attention to the amazing God that has done so much for us because he can and wishes to do the same for them. Next week we are going to move forward in what St. Peter continues on, this consequence of this amazing transformation that happens to each believer. 
this difference, right? We don't embrace worm theology. There are many Lutheran pastors who do, and many Lutheran churches who do, where it's always uh, self-mortification. It's always crying about our sins. But if we are always doing that and never talking about how much better God has made us, then we're forgetting to be, you know, a people that rejoice in God's blessing. We're always mourning over our sins instead of being happy that Christ saved us from them. (laughs) We'll get into a bit more of that next week, but until then, our Lord bless you and keep you. Amen and amen.